0: The episode you're about to hear is an old Patreon episode from about a year ago of me and Josh Hallmark going on a research trip for his podcast, True Crime Bullshit. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. I'll also leave a link in the show notes. I want to thank Josh for not only participating in this, but also allowing me to release these into the main feed, even though they're Patreon exclusives because that gave me a little bit of a break, and I am looking forward to being back on schedule with Crimelines. With new episodes, the break was really refreshing. It got my head in the right place, and I also want to thank my Patreon supporters, because these two episodes are paywall episodes. They pay to have exclusive access to these episodes, but being able to use them very occasionally when I need a break or I get sick. I think I've done it one time before. I just really appreciate that they are so gracious about me using this content when I need to. I'll be back next week with new content, and then going forward, we will have episodes on the first, third, and fourth Wednesdays of the month. And if that's not enough crime lines, and my back catalog of 200 episodes is not enough, you can always join Patreon or Apple subscriptions to get even more content. So thank you for all your support, and I'll be back next week.
1: That's hilarious. I wonder is that if
0: that they It is a donkey. <laughs> <laughs> the two city folk in Texas <laughs> we're, like, were like, "What is that?" <laughs>
1: This is True Crime Bullshit. I'm your host, Josh Hallmark, and this is a serialized story of Israel Keys.
0: Welcome to the second part of our look into Israel Keys over here on Patreon. This episode will cover the time Keyes was in Texas after murdering Samantha Koenig, but before he went back to Alaska to dispose of her body and send the ransom note. We covered all of those details in the other Israel Keys episode. So if you are not familiar with the case, I definitely recommend listening to that first. This episode is a little different than what I usually do here on Crime Lines. It is going to contain narration along with audio from when Josh and I went to Texas. It will also include an exclusive interview I did with Josh, some audio from the Israel Keys FBI interrogation, as well as some clips Josh sent me from experts he interviewed. I absolutely could not have put this episode or the last one together without Josh's help. I also wanna note that I am not a field recorder. I'm not used to recording anywhere that's not my basement. So some of the audio is a little iffy due to the wind when we were at the site. And I will say I learned a lot about recording while out and about on this trip. Don't know when I'll use this information again, but I'll store it in there in case I ever do anything like this in the future. One of the things Josh is doing with his podcast, True Crime Bullshit, is exploring Keyes' known travel records, the breadcrumbs that he dropped in interviews with agents, and his pattern of behavior to then hopefully identify some of his victims.
1: I'm also really bad at doing this stuff because I'm such a rule follower. I'm like, oh, no. Oh, my God, we're trespassing.
0: (laughs) And that's why we were in Texas trespassing at the site of a 2012 arson. After killing Samantha Koenig and going on his family-friendly cruise, Keyes went back to Texas. He left his daughter with his mother and went out of contact, turning off his phone in the meantime. He was gone for three consecutive days, reappeared for the night, disappeared for part of another day, reappeared, disappeared again this is the time that Josh was investigating while in Texas, and he did let me tag along while I was down there with him. During his confessions to the FBI, he said he was a little bit out of control at this point because of the pressure of the publicity around Samantha's case and also a decreased ability to control his impulses. He also said he felt like he wasn't doing very well blending in and acting normal, which is something his mother said about this Texas trip. He was acting oddly. The FBI obviously was very curious about this time in Texas because here's Keyes saying he's unraveling and he's also going off the grid for days. But Keyes claimed in exchange for a cigar that the crimes he committed in Texas were an arson and a bank robbery. He claimed he set the house on fire to distract first responders away from the bank that he was then going to rob. Keyes said that the house was in Alto, Texas, though he gave enough details to identify that the fire was actually an unsolved arson that happened in Alito, Texas, which is an hour west of Dallas, which is where Keyes was staying with his mother, Heidi. So the house was abandoned when he lit it on fire?
1: I think it was like a snowbird situation because like someone clearly had like lived in there there was stuff all throughout the house I think he even said it was like a little bit hoardery but they say the house had been abandoned for two weeks and I'm like abandoned such an interesting choice of words if there's stuff in it and it's only two
0: weeks so would that that would be their front driveway and then their back so the house is visible from the road or would have been
1: but that makes sense because then it's easier to identify that it's unoccupied and you can come down here and it wouldn't be visible from the road.
0: And especially hiding in the garage because that would not have been quite as visible. Yeah. It's a nice property. It I is. mean, it's big, it's heavily treed around it, which you probably liked too.
1: Mm-hmm. And other than those people, there's, you can't see any
0: other house. Josh and I walked around this property where the fire had been. We were debating which one of us would be more likely to pass as a real estate agent. Should someone show up and ask us why we were there? So I'm standing there with my pink hair. I was wearing ripped jeans and a tank top that said Missouri across it. So I do think we agreed Josh was our better option. Thankfully, it didn't come to that. But... We were standing on this property. It was very quiet, except for the noises of wildlife. You heard some donkeys in the opening of this. And it was very eerie standing there.
1: I might be making myself. It also kind of like smells like fire.
0: I No, I can smell it. And I I don't know. I mean, it's a so it's a Friday morning, almost afternoon. And it's. Not exactly cool out, so I don't know why someone would have a fire going. But I I do, I definitely smell fire, but I don't know if someone's got their field up or something. So that smoke smell was very creepy because I don't know where it came from. The fire had been nine years before, and all but the front retaining wall and a couple of steps had been torn down. Grass had grown over the site of the house. Where the garage was was just a cement slab. But the smell was pretty strong and had no obvious source. So I think that really added to almost the creepiness of being at a site where we know Israel Keys committed a crime. What crime? We're not entirely sure. It was at the very least an arson and a burglary because we know Keys took some things from the house.
1: Of course the police report is not specific, but they were like they had a fanny pack and it was full of things he took from the house. It also had, and they said a hairband with hair attached. And knowing Keys, I'm like, oh, mm-hmm. is there like a ponytail in it? Or is it just like little like straggly hairs right. that are attached to a right. hairband? Because we know he had some human hair when he robbed the bank an hour later.
0: After setting the house on fire, Keyes left the scene, supposedly watched the fire for a while, and then went to Azel, where he committed a bank robbery. During the robbery, as part of his disguise, Keyes had human hair sort of glued into a white hard hat. Keyes said the fire was to distract the police and the town emergency services away from the bank that he intended to rob. But that really just doesn't make a lot of sense. Josh and I drove from the house to the bank, and it took us over 30 minutes, and that's without any traffic. There was no way Keyes would expect the same first responders to be called to a house fire in Alito and a bank robbery in Azel. And also, if you listen to some of the interrogation of Keys, he didn't seem very confident or very comfortable when the discussion was about the arson. Any facade of confidence he had, really broke down, so I'm just going to play it so you can hear what I mean.
2: And so, I know we talked to you, you said that when you would, did these burglaries and stuff, you would take jewelry and those kind of things. Did you bring ju- that kind of stuff back
3: with you and give it to Or, I mean, how did you, what did you do with it? No, I usually would um, bury it.
2: Is that so that you could... I mean, did you then dig it up later to sell it, or just to possess it?
3: Uh, it's just more to have it, know where it is, type of thing. And um, because you said you brought the stuff from um, uh, the Alito fire home, and oh know. yeah, yeah, there was a little, yeah, there was a little bit of jewelry. Yeah. That wasn't really a burglary per se, that was just, I mean, I had found that house, but I was running out of time, so I guess I just figured, um, take a look inside and and burn it. (laughs) I don't know.
2: Take a look inside, but you said you were in that in there
3: a couple hours looking around. Yeah. But I had found it before. I mean I I knew it was there before. I I don't remember how many days before I found it, but I knew it was there and I knew it was an empty house.
0: Keyes told the FBI agents that he had seen the house a couple of days before, so he knew it was empty. And we know that's a pattern with Keyes with his known murders. He didn't like to leave too much to chance if he could help it. For instance, he prepared the shed prior to bringing Samantha to it. And with the couriers, he had scoped out the abandoned farmhouse ahead of time. Keyes admitted to the agents that he was staking out places in Texas, like maintenance sheds at cemeteries because he thought about abducting and killing somebody, but he said he ended up not going through with it. That said, Keyes is also a liar, so we're not going to take his word for it. So if Keyes' explanation for this arson to pull the police away doesn't make sense, why did he set fire to that house? Josh and I discussed that during our long drive between the scene of the fire to the bank robbery.
1: Aren't you going immediately to the bank to capitalize on the distraction you've just created rather than sitting around to watch a house burn?
0: Right, right. If the reason to do it was to cause a distraction, towns away, <laughs> you'd be out of there because you would that's what you did it for. If you watched it burn, it's because either you wanted the rush of the fire and he was doing it as just a straight arson or he was making sure it worked yeah. and covered up whatever he was covering up. I think he was covering something up. Absolutely. I don't think at that point in his career, I hate that word for, mm. but it's, it's the word. Yeah. So we're going to use it. I don't think at that point he was carrying out crimes for, for in entertainment. Like, I mean, he was, he was very trying to keep it together. Wasn't he... At that point, starting to de Or not de-escalate. What's he it was called like, when at, they he was, lose their minds? <laughs> yeah.
1: um, no, at that point, he was, like, unraveling, yes. according to him. He, his crimes had, like, severely escalated. He had lost control. He was killing at a higher frequency than he had been accustomed to. And,
0: so stopping to commit an arson for fun in the middle of... I mean, that, that house, you, you wouldn't even get that much attention from it because it was just out there.
1: Yeah, and it's not like it's, like two in the morning he did it
0: right.
1: at 9 30 a.m right <laughs> like there's a lot of people around
0: and you know actually that it was in the morning that it was during daylight makes me think it was it, like the arson for the sake of arson seems even less likely mm-hmm. because you don't light fires in the morning because like wouldn't we do a fi- even like normal people like us If you're doing a fire in the backyard, you do it after dark. Yeah. Because you want to see the fire. Yeah. Like the light of the fire is the enjoyable part of it.
1: There's also, if you go back to the couriers, he, the only reason he didn't light that house on fire is because it was on a busy road and he got carried away and wasn't done with them until daylight. And so he left them there because he was like, if I light a fire, it'll create too much commotion. Here he is not on a busy road. It is morning. So did he get carried away?
0: So there is a pattern here. Keyes killed Deborah Feldman, and then he robbed a bank right away. Keyes killed the couriers. He said he wanted to burn the house down, but he couldn't. And he also said he wanted to rob a bank or two or three, but because the courier's car was unreliable, he didn't feel he could do it. So that seems pretty significant that Keyes robbed or wanted to rob banks after two of his known murders. and. He said he would have committed arson if it was reasonable to do it and get away with it with a double murder. Now, here we are in Texas, and we have two of those elements. We have an arson and we have a bank robbery. So was there a murder first? Keys said no. Here he is discussing his time in Texas. One of the things that was on your phone There's a cemetery in Texas. Did you go to a cemetery in Texas? Mm Mm-hmm. What was the cemetery about? One in Glenrose. Does that sound right?
3: Yeah, I went to a few different cemeteries.
0: What did you go to the cemetery for? That's the picture that was on your phone. That hurt.
3: Is that on MapQuest or something or Yeah, I think of? you took a picture <laughs> of
4: your computer, is what it looks like.
2: We <laughs> got
3: <laughs> Some problem with technology, you're depending on it. You don't even think about it anymore. No, no, I that was mostly I was just looking for different places convenient locations, didn't, yeah, I, I went to a lot of different places because none of them really seemed like they worked out. People are very nosy in Texas, so, I wasn't, I, I it took me a while to find anywhere that I felt comfortable. Did you find that place? Well, I found a few different I didn't I didn't take anybody on that trip, if that's what you're asking. I was I was that's what I was that's what the thought process was. I didn't do it but,
0: but it bears repeating. Keys is a liar. During the time Keyes was in Texas, there were multiple people in the United States who went missing and are still missing today. But only one of them, of the people reported missing, was in the area. And this was 58-year-old James Lamar Tidwell, and he went missing from Mount Enterprise, Texas. This is three hours away from Dallas, where Keyes was staying with his mother. In talking to Josh and from listening to his podcast, I know that Josh initially thought probably not a Key's victim. There seemed to be two other people of interest in the case, though the police later said they were not persons of interest anymore. And Josh didn't pull James Tidwell's name out of thin air. In 2018, someone sent a tip to the investigators to look at Key's in relation to James's disappearance. So let's get into the case of James Tidwell. James worked overnights and he left work on the morning of February 15th, 2012, to head home and sleep. According to the Longview News Journal, his boss called the house to see if he would come in at 5 p.m. instead of his scheduled shift at 10. According to what his boss told the paper at the time, James's wife, Carol, answered the phone and said James had worked on taxes that day, so he hadn't gotten to sleep when he normally would. He was sleeping when the boss called, and she did not want to wake him up. So the boss said to just ask James if he could come in early when he did wake up. James did not go in early. He didn't go in on his scheduled shift, and for the next two weeks, he didn't show up at work something he had never done before. Not only did James never no call, no show for one night, he certainly didn't do it for two weeks. His boss ended up reporting him missing. The police immediately began investigating, and when they talked to James's wife, Carol, they learned that she didn't always stay at the cabin they owned on an 11-acre lot. They were having some marital issues, but she also hated staying in the remote cabin alone overnight while James was at work. They had actually only recently moved there. So Carol would often stay with her daughter about 30 minutes away. When the police asked Carol when she last saw James, she claimed she had seen him just five days before he was reported missing. That would be at least a week after anyone else had heard from him. But later, when she was asked again, Carol moved the date to the 17th, and then she moved it to the 15th, which put it in line with what his boss and friends and family had been reporting. Now, this changing story on when she last saw her husband did put some suspicion on Carol. But like I said, she wasn't living at the property full-time, and it really is possible she simply mixed up when she had last seen him because at the time, she wasn't seeing him with any set routine. James's truck was found abandoned five miles from his house. His house and the truck were both searched, but nothing significant like blood or signs of a struggle were found. There was a Walmart receipt in the truck, but it didn't appear to belong to James or Carol because the police actually went to the Walmart and pulled the security footage for the time of that receipt. Neither James or Carol were seen on the surveillance cameras. In checking James's bank accounts, they found that all activity stopped after February 14th, And February 15th, 2012 is the accepted date of James Tidwell's disappearance. It was six years later, in May 2018, that a tip came in that James's neighbor had something to do with his disappearance. Supposedly, someone saw the neighbor and the neighbor's brother leaving James's driveway on the day he disappeared. One of them was driving James's truck. This tip didn't go anywhere. It had come from someone whose friend said that their friend had said that the neighbor was involved. The police were even able to confirm that the neighbor's brother wasn't even in town on the day of the disappearance, so he couldn't have been seen on the property. It seems this story was just passed on and on and on until somebody reported it. Four days after the police spoke with the neighbor in 2018, Another tip came in. This was through a Facebook message. It suggested that the police look into Israel Keyes as a possible suspect. Keyes was already dead at this point, and according to the files Josh got, they seemed to not really look into him at that point, with the justification that if the suspect is dead, there's only so much investigating you can do. Now, you may be wondering why a six-year-old missing person's case got two tips all of the sudden in May 2018. That seemed kind of odd to me as well, and I found my answer where I find all my answers, and that's the newspaper archives. In April 2018, shortly before these tips came in, the family increased the reward for information into James Tidwell's whereabouts and this increased reward was publicized and garnered more media attention. Though the police ended up not pursuing Israel Keys as a lead, Josh did, as much as anyone outside of law enforcement could. He's gotten all the files the police will allow to be released, and he's traveled to Texas. He has spoken with experts, including Dr. Christopher Kunkel, who's a clinical and forensic psychologist he is also the president of the American Investigative Society of Cold Cases. This clip you're about to hear is from an interview done by Josh Hallmark, and I want to thank Josh again for allowing me to use these.
4: He he's makes the statement about taking people, right? like, And it's, it's kind of a weird way of, of referring to his crimes. And I think it's a deflection to some degree, but I, I often wonder if he was almost in a way, stealing Tidwell's identity. Not overtly, you know, like taking his license and becoming him, but, you know, he robbed that bank in an outfit and hair that seemingly was an imitation of Tidwell, you know, with a construction helmet and the glasses. And, you know, you could say, well, it's out of convenience, right? He has these things and it's just coincidence that they were items that Tidwell would have. But, or is he, you know, in a way, he's taken his life, he's taken his identity, now he's going to rob a bank as him. It's just like one of those weird psychodynamical thoughts I have because I have time in my hands, I guess. I don't know.
0: <laughs> While Josh isn't 100% sure James Tidwell is a Key's case, there are some really strong circumstantial elements here. We know that Keyes was driving all over Texas while allegedly telling his mom he was stuck in the mud for three days. We know this because of the mileage he put on his rental car. He had around double the mileage he should have had if he only went to the places he claimed he went to. He cannot be confined to any one area of Texas. So Josh proposes a possible timeline of the abduction and murder of James Tidwell and how it fits in with the house being burned down and with the bank robbery. It is in episode 16 of True Crime BS. Now with Crime Lines, I'm telling you the story of what happened and we tread very lightly when it comes to speculation. But here at Crime Lines, we aren't investigating a case. When investigating, like Josh is doing, you have to speculate. You have to take all of the pieces and see what fits, what doesn't, and what are alternative explanations for things. So the following is speculation, but it is based on hours and hours and really months and years of investigation by Josh using case files, travel to the sites, an in-depth study of key's known patterns of behavior and even consultations with criminologists and a former FBI agent. So with all my disclaimers about what you're going to hear being speculation, let's go ahead and get into it. The basic timeline here is that on February 15th, 2012, Keyes abducted James Tidwell, likely from his cabin. He then used James's truck to get away from the property with James, and that's in line with his known murders. He abducted the couriers from their home in their own car. He abducted Samantha Koenig from her workplace, and he admitted he wanted to use her vehicle, but she hadn't driven herself to work that day. Keyes would have then driven James's truck to where he left his rental car, which would have been four or five miles away, far enough, that it would never be considered connected to the disappearance, even if it was spotted. Keys then took James three hours away to the empty Alito house, which Keys admitted he scoped out prior to the arson and knew it was empty. Again, part of his pattern. There he would have raped and killed in this scenario James Tidwell. Keyes then left James's body somewhere before he went to the Cleburne Mall to meet his mother and return to her house. In this time he was gone, Keyes had missed his flight back to Anchorage, so his mother bought him new plane tickets for him and his daughter early on the 16th. After that, Keyes left again. This time he burned down the Alito house to presumably hide evidence of the murder. He then robbed the bank using a disguise he rigged up using James Tidwell's hard hat, which was never found, and James's actual hair. After the robbery, Keyes went back to his mother's house. Like we said, burning down the house is also part of Keyes's known behavior or desired behavior. He wanted to burn down the house in the Courier case And with Samantha Koenig, he couldn't exactly burn down his own shed without drawing too much attention to himself, so he did burn the contents. On February 17th, Keyes left his mother's house again and drove to Houston to hide some of the proceeds from the bank robbery. He hid them near the Houston airport. This is confirmed by cell phone pings and statements Keyes made. He then went to a Walmart in Jacksonville, Texas at 11:29, which is confirmed by a receipt and CCTV footage. At the Walmart, Keyes bought a shovel, spray air freshener, lube, and a $500 prepaid debit card. This was a common way Keyes would get rid of bank robbery proceeds. He would buy gift cards and prepaid debit cards. That way, he was never caught carrying around a suspicious amount of cash. Keyes then has several hours of unaccounted-for time between the trip to Walmart and when he returned to his mother's house. A shovel, air freshener, and lube all sound like purchases Keyes would have made prior to raping and murdering someone, not after. That is until you take into account the fact that Keyes was very likely a necrophile. So it wouldn't have been outside of his known behaviors to return to the body to commit necrophilia and then bury the body afterwards or dispose of it in water. The air freshener spray would help mask any smells in the rental car. So in this theory, in this speculation, That person was James Tidwell, and James fit the profile of Keyes' victims. Now, Keyes admitted to raping and killing both men and women, but he always made sure they were small enough that he could overpower them. James Tidwell was only five foot three, to Israel Keyes' six foot two. He also lived in a remote area where there was no gate or fence and no cameras. Something we know from Keys's interrogation tapes, he was acutely aware of, gates, fences, and cameras. Dr. Kunkel did discuss with Josh about how methodical Keys would be and that he would be aware of these things. Keyes was not opposed to spending days getting ready for a crime, making sure there were no cameras around. And then he would adapt well if things didn't go to plan.
4: He was, from what I can tell, pretty deliberate about how he planned to carry out an offense. Now, he wasn't always successful from what I could tell either. And what it seems is that would send him into some sort of disarray where he had then the compulsion to act. And then he would just have to rely on what skills he had, which is, and I think I've talked about this before, too you get to the skilled opportunist. He's somebody who's developed the skill set and he can use it when he needs it. He'd like to have things planned out and well executed. And as you've heard him say in interviews, well, I decided not to do it because it seemed like it was going to be too much work. Um, He can make that assessment on the spot because he knows what materials he needs. He knows what the environment's like. He's been in these circumstances before. So he, can kind of size people up as to how they're going to react and what he's going to have to do. In my estimation, he's, he went about his crime pattern in the same way. And uh, I don't think, you know, probably most, if not all of his bank robberies were random. Uh, I don't think they were. I think he, he sized up those banks. I think he sized up an area, you know, as you've talked about a lot, he's driven, you know, extensively, to get to places and then it seems he'd spend several days in that area or going back to that area. The the Texas trip is really interesting and that Louisiana trip is really telling as to I think how he went about calculating.
0: Because we are seeing the elements of a Keyes murder in Texas during these five days, it's almost ridiculous to think he didn't kill someone. The only evidence he didn't kill someone is that he said he didn't, and who believes that? Now, whether the victim was James Tidwell or not, we don't know. There is some circumstantial evidence pointing to it. We know he went missing in the same time Keyes was in the area. The way he disappeared was in line with what we know about how Keyes operated. And there is that construction hat Yeah, I'm sure Keyes had a similar one back in Alaska. It's a hard hat. He was a contractor and a construction worker. But he certainly wouldn't have traveled with it on a family vacation. So where did he get it? And where did he get the hair for the disguise? Keyes said it was actual human hair. He was asked where he bought it. And he said, you don't have to buy real hair to get real hair. So what ways does he get hair other than buying it? did he take it from someone who had shoulder-length hair like James Tidwell. And as for this bank robbery, I also have a big question about this. Key said he robbed the bank because he owed his mother money from the airline tickets. He was in crippling debt, and he needed to pay her back. It's not like she had a lot of money to spare. She spent most of her life Raising a huge family, and let's be blunt, she was bouncing around colts. She didn't exactly have a lot of money of her own. But how much could he have owed her? three, four hundred dollars? Keyes' girlfriend had a career, and he probably could have just gotten the money from her. Instead, he robs a bank for10,000 dollars to get, what, a few hundred to pay his mother back. We talked earlier about the murder and bank robbery being a pattern. There is a theory that Keyes would rob banks as he came down from the high of a murder. That comes from Keyes himself. Here he is discussing the bank robbery in Tupper Lake after it was believed he had killed Deborah Feldman. According to him, he killed someone, but it wasn't Deborah Feldman, but it's pretty accepted it was, in fact, Deborah Feldman. Actually, I'm going to go along with it, but... Well, there were more... I
3: walked through the door. I wasn't even for sure I was going to rob the place. Because I was kind of uh, amped up anyway at that time, so... I, uh... But, yeah, I walked through the door, and there were a lot of people, so I pulled my gun out, but then I already had the note, and I was like, this doesn't make sense. I've already got the gun out. There's literally a
0: picture where you've got no one in one Do hand it. and
3: gun in the other. Yeah. You know, I, was, I was very undecided when I started
0: that. <laughs> <laughs> And Bobby Chicone, a former FBI agent who recovered Samantha Koenig's remains, discussed this theory with Josh.
2: I think there's, there's some debate on, on that, that behavior pattern. Some people say that the killing first and the robbing the bank after the killing could be a way to motivate himself to get him on a high to rob a bank because he killed alone and he killed people one-on-one, on one and so he wasn't going to get caught publicly. But he knew to rob a bank was a more of a public nature crime. You were in among people and you couldn't kill everybody in the bank. So to get the courage to go into a crowded bank or you know, a bank just that has tellers in it and people in it, that you're not going to kill. He had to have that that high and that courage. And there's a school of thought that the killings are what got him a high. And he was still riding that high a day or two later when he robbed a bank.
0: So whether Keyes needed the money or not, it seems likely the bank robbery was part of this high and this rush and this adrenaline that he had from a murder. I completely believe that and I believe the investigators believe that. But without more evidence, we will not know for sure if Keyes had a Texas victim and if he did, if it was James Tidwell. Without more evidence, we don't even know how many victims Keyes had. The popular belief out there is that Keyes had 11 total victims based on him agreeing with the agents that there were less than a dozen And then after his suicide, 11 skulls, keys, drew in blood, were found in his cell. So this number of 11 victims comes up again and again. But Josh has some pretty strong views on that number.
1: It is the biggest bunch of bullshit um, (laughs) I, I have seen and heard. Because I've had, you know, what a lot of people don't realize is, like, there's a lot that goes on behind the show that I can't or don't share uh for legal reasons or trust reasons or you know we're building a case still um but there are people most people in the fbi do not believe it was less than 12 um <laughs> and so it's just part of this like keys mythology that has become so rich um that people perceive it to be factual uh and you know the skulls come up a lot and i get really irritated with 48 hours um <laughs> because of that footage has really just ruined my life. Keyes was an asshole. Um, He went to great lengths to not give the FBI clues about any victims that he didn't think they would ever find. You know, the victims that he talked about, he even said, I'm only giving you stuff that I think you can find on your own. And they kept saying, so you had less than 12, less than 12, less than 12. He never said he had less than 12. Um, And so I, and then they landed on 11 and he never corrected them, but he never confessed that it was 11, and so I think those 11 skulls that were found drawn in his own blood, it was just his way of being a dick. Um, Mm -hmm. I I don't think there's any merit. I don't think that all of a sudden when he kills himself, he's going to reveal that information like he's either going to reveal significantly more which i don't think he ever would have or he's just going to be an asshole straight to the bitter end and i I think that's what happened
0: so obviously josh doesn't believe the number and he believes it was just keys toying with the investigators one last time
1: what's really interesting and you know i i don't want anyone to take this as like Fact or that I believe um, these 11 people are all victims, but we have very slowly been pouring through the name as 44 and ruling people out or marking people as like highly unlikely or unreasonable victims. And the number that are left, coincidentally, perhaps, is 11. Uh, so, you know, it's very plausible that he knew there were 11 people on his computer that he did kill, and so he was going to admit that he killed 11 people.
0: The name is 44 Josh referred to in this clip are the 44 missing people who were found on Keyes' computers after his arrest. The belief is that the name is 44 are a mix of his victims and missing people who came up when he was searching for info on his actual victims the searches occurred over a 15-month period. It's likely there are more names that Israel Keys looked up, but they would have been on a computer he had gotten rid of by the time he was arrested, and he even admitted he looked some up on public computers, like at the library. Josh has all these names listed under is 44 If you go to his website, which is our-americana.com, if you want to have a look. We know that some of the people on this list are definitely his victims because Bill and Lorraine Courier, for example, are on the list. But some of them we know are not. Daniel Barter is on the list and he went missing from Alabama in 1959, which was nearly 20 years before Keyes was born. But Keyes said he didn't usually search directly for his victims. He would look up information similar to them because he didn't wanna get caught doing a direct search, and it was really after the courier's case got a lot of publicity that he started doing this more and more. He got a bit hooked on reading up on cases, especially reading the comments section.
3: Well, with the the couriers or that time frame, I guess I was starting to want publicity, maybe, for some of the stuff I did. Maybe I started to get hooked on it a little bit as far as checking up on the news and uh you mentioned publicity, but that's not the way it started. Is that what you're saying? It may have changed to publicity? Yeah, I definitely got carried away with the publicity aspect of it. When do you think? My entire goal up until the courier thing um, was to stay under the radar and not have there be any. I mean, for a lot of the stuff that was before that, I couldn't even find stories on you couldn't there wasn't anything
2: really you couldn't find anything on. well I mean was there a time like a
3: one-day thing maybe but not certainly not no, something like that it. went on for a year or huh. months or whatever
2: and the couriers was big news from what it
0: sounded like well big news for that area
3: yeah they were yeah and I think that's when it started um, just kept checking back on the story and kind of getting a kick out of the different things that the investigators would say knowing if they're right or wrong and then or knowing that they're wrong if you like that. yeah and um, seeing the difference because obviously i mean i know what happened seeing the difference from their perspective versus my perspective and uh, and then on top of that when People would read the news story and then, you know, everybody wants to comment on it, like (laughs) their theories of what happened. And so I got really hooked on that, too, um, because it was entertaining to me, I guess.
0: Um, Did you join in in any of those? Did you comment? Yeah. I have to say it's a little odd when I comment on articles online, true crime articles, to think that the killer may very well be reading my comment. So back to this is there is a name on the list that caught my eye, and that is Kara Kapetsky. Kara's remains were found, and her killer has been caught. He is in prison. I did an entire episode on the case. Kara was a teen who went missing from Belton, Missouri, in May 2007. Also on the is 44 is Bianca Piper, who's a teen who went missing from Foley, Missouri, in March 2005. So why was Israel Keyes searching for teens who went missing in Missouri? Somewhere I have not heard come up in discussions of his travels. I asked Josh about this and about geographic patterns within the name is 44. And I know that he had two cases in Missouri that he searched for, um, one of which was definitely not him. And then he had like three in Tennessee and so those are two states that I don't hear a lot about Keyes being in, but he had multiple people from those states on the Name is 44.
1: And Tennessee, we can kind of make sense of, and I've talked about it this season and a little bit last. There are three Name is 44 missing people uh, from Tennessee, and they all disappeared along the same one lane highway, which you know we've kind of been cracking open that he used rural highways to travel because he could... Drive through rural areas and he wouldn't be a scene, um, and there's less uh, security or toll booths. It's just an easier way for him to travel the country undetected. And those three missing women, all young women, all disappeared along this same rural route. Um, one is probably not him, uh, another one. I get in trouble because I'm not totally sold. Couldn't be him, but it's quite a famous case uh, where they have some people in custody, um, but there's no real strong physical evidence that they were involved. And then another one, which probably isn't him. uh, But it's clear to me that he was Googling that highway. And then the Missouri, I cannot make heads or tails of because it's, not an area really we can place him in. And I know, I I think both of those victims, I'm just looking over my shoulder at my map, and they are lateral to one another. So they likely could have disappeared from the same highway as well. Um, And so that's worth looking into. But yeah, other than that, I can't make heads or tails of Missouri.
0: They're on the opposite ends of the of the state. You know, one is in a suburb of St. Louis and the other was in a suburb of Kansas City. Both of the cities were also outer suburbs. They're not like directly next to the city. So that makes sense if he was taking rural highways that he would have been looking on either one of those. But why he would have been in Missouri to begin with, it's quite a ways out of his way.
1: Yeah, and you know, I'm again I'm looking at the map so we're having, you know, an exploratory conversation in real time. Um listeners, this is what happens behind the scenes. Uh, <laughs> and you know, Route 30, which we know he traveled multiple times cross country relative to keys is not too far from Missouri. So, you know, I I think it's worth looking into um and uh, fortunate or unfortunately, The timeline is not exhaustive, like I said, and the FBI did not subpoena records from all airlines, so it's very likely he traveled quite a bit more than we have visibility to.
0: Yeah, well, um, if you ever need a field trip to Missouri, (laughs) I am here to guide you through it, but... That's probably like, what, season 10? I mean, that one's out there a ways. You have a oh lot Oh of- God, that's <laughs>
1: exhausting.
0: So much of the work Josh is doing is looking for these patterns. People say Keys worked without an M.O., and that really makes him scary, like he could have killed anyone at any time. But the more digging Josh has done, it's shown that this is not entirely true. Like every other human on this planet, Israel Keys had habits, routines, and places he felt comfortable, and places he felt uncomfortable. I recently attended the Savannah Crime Expo, and I listened to Dr. Kathleen Ramsland speak on Dennis Rader, a.k.a. BTK. She said the thing with serial killers is not that they are monsters. It's that they're human. They operate the same as anyone else when you really look at it. It's their actions that are extreme, that are dysfunctional. But for the most part, if you take someone like BTK or Israel Keys and you look at them using what we know about human behavior, they actually start making more sense. And when criminals make sense to us, the universal we can start solving these crimes. And that's part of why Josh travels so much to significant locations On the keys timeline. By being there, he can see patterns he might not see with an internet search.
1: A few years ago, it was kind of a like, oh, it would be nice to do this, but it's probably not that important because of technology like Google Maps and YouTube and all that stuff. And then I just happened to move into a keys hotspot. Uh, and I get asked a lot, no, I did not intentionally move here because it was a Keys hotspot. <laughs> <laughs> it was just coincidence. Um, and then I was like, oh, I should start, you know, taking little day trips and going to his constable house or going to Albany. Um, and then once I started doing that, I realized there was this profound value in it because there's so much you can gain from being in a place that technology can't convey. Um You know, like the terrain or the drive times um, or what you're passing when you're driving um, or even just like the local culture. So once I started doing them, I I became a little addicted because it was like, oh, there's so much value in this and I can learn so much from this. And now the goal is to like go everywhere he went, which is a, a hefty goal because he traveled quite a bit. I think the trip that's become most famous, because I call it an oh shit moment on the podcast, which people really kind of glommed onto, um, is I, I went to Tepper Lake in the Blake Falls Reservoir where his kill kit was. And while I was at Blake Falls, I the first thing I noticed was like, oh man, these kill kits are like very close to the road. It's not like they're out deep into the woods. Um, and he just kind of had a general understanding of, like, areas that, that most people would not walk into. So it's, you know, th- thick brush, um, a lot of boulders, some tough terrain, but literally yards from a road. Uh, and that really helped open my eyes up to, like, how he was operating. And then I also started to notice markers. You know, that kill kit was buried right by a marina. Or not a marina, a boat launch which is a great place to like park your car and go disappear into the woods without stirring up any um, suspicion. And then I also noticed it was the kill kit was hidden under power lines. So it would be an identifiable place for him to find. And also generally power lines going through the woods, uh, there's a clearing. So you can get deep into the woods uh, pretty quickly without being obstructed by trees and brush. So those stood out to me, and then I was driving back to my hotel, and I passed a boat launch about two miles outside of Tupper Lake, and I, in that moment, I remembered he had said that he had buried remains along the Raquette River two miles outside of Tupper Lake, and I just thought, oh, that, that can't be a coincidence that this kill kit that he buried 20 minutes away is at a boat launch, and here's a boat launch in the exact space that he said that these remains were buried. Uh, and then I, I looked back through all my files, which thankfully I was traveling with at the time and realized the Winooski River kill kit was buried right by a boat launch and that his Eagle River kill kit was buried right by a boat launch and underneath power lines. So I think that was one of those moments where I was like, oh, man you see things so differently when you're out in the field. And, and that was a big one for me.
0: And Josh isn't done yet.
1: Uh, one of the researchers for the show and I are doing a little tour, which is funny because I've lived in both Portland and Seattle, uh, but I haven't really done a lot of keys investigating since uh, the podcast started. So we are doing a drive to Eugene where a woman disappeared that we think could be a keys victim to Depot Bay, where uh, a young couple disappeared, who we think could be Key's victims, and then up the Oregon and Washington coasts into the peninsula to Lake Quinault and the Quilute Marina and Beaver Lake and Lake Crescent and Squim, where we believe that, well, we know there was a lot of activity with Key's, and we have some very strong possible victims in those areas. So, it's going to be a very big, very fast-paced tour of the mountains and coast of Washington and Oregon.
0: What are your plans as far as some of his more far-reaching places, like Anchorage, where we know he, he definitely committed a crime there, or like Belize, which is a suspected location?
1: I mean, look, I feel like this might be a peer pressure campaign happening right now, a very subtle one, (laughs) um, because I know you're going to Anchorage.
0: I'm going in June. I thought it'd be a good time. I mean, I will have two of my older kids with me, so they're not going to want to go on a, a Keys adventure. However, it would be a good time for you to go.
1: I, yeah, I think I've committed to going with you on that trip. June is very far away, so who knows? Like, I live in constant fear that, like, <laughs> I, I don't know, that, like, people are going to stop listening. Like, just one day I'm going to wake up and no one's going to listen to the show anymore. So <laughs> I, I'm very anxious about planning that far ahead. But um, yeah, I, you know, as long as the sh- I still exist and the show still exists, I will be there.
0: <laughs> so, yeah, so Anchorage is coming up, but what about a place like Belize?
1: I mean, I, I look, like on a personal level, I would love to take a week in Belize. Um, and on a professional level, I think it would be really helpful. So I I anticipate that will happen soon. My partner and I have a very big anniversary in February, and he has a birthday in January. And I have a lot of January off, and it's going to be very cold up here in the Berkshires. So maybe maybe it'll happen in a few months.
0: And speaking of his trip to the Pacific Northwest...
1: So, yeah, if you're listening and you're in the Seattle area, you can join Charlie and me for and some other podcasters as well. Colleen from Misconduct, French from the research team, and I think we're working on a few others at the Orient Express, which is this old like grouping of train cars that have been turned into a bar, a karaoke room, and a Chinese restaurant. (laughs) We'll be there for happy hour from 6 to 8 on November 20th.
0: I want to thank Josh Hallmark for the incredible amount of help he has given me on this Patreon episodes. I've actually probably spent more time on these than I do on a regular Crime Lines episode, and it couldn't have been done without Josh's help. Any mistakes are my own, and I'm sure Josh will be sending me corrections shortly.